This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening to the city of London. I'm Alex Steele. Uh, Guy Johnson is still off for the rest of the week. You are listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio. It's just about 5 p.m. in the city of London. It is 12 p.m. right here in the U.S. Um, Really interesting stories out today, and some market moves are quite fascinating. You have a ton of earnings. We know that. We'll break them all down for you, whether you're here in the U.S., tech kind of outperforming, or over in Europe with Deutsche Bank. But you also had the U.K. budget, which we'll talk about in a second. Yay, if you drink a lot of sparkling rosé, that seems to be quite good for you. Um, If you drink high-content cocktail drinks, maybe not so much. Taxes are going to go up on that. The real interesting point, though, I think, is what's happening in the bond market. Um, You have the bond market just crazy right now. So on the one hand, we come in, uh, you have a yield much lower over in the UK. Now the third, fi- the 50-year yield uh, over in the UK is down 18 basis points. 18 basis points. Two-year re-rating by seven basis points as well. Um, the UK government's going to borrow less money. And so that was kind of helping support uh, prices here and yields coming a lot lower. Um, then you got Canada. Bank of Canada is going to get maybe more aggressive on rate hikes. You see a, a huge re-rating in the front end. You have a sell-off happening over there with yields up by 19 basis points. Uh, and then here in the U.S., we're kind of somewhat in the middle. You get a little selling on the front end, a little buying in the back end, but really interesting moves. Also, we just got a headline here talking about gas prices that um, President Putin is telling Gazprom to work on filling EU gas stores from November 8th. So maybe relief before the winter is coming. Fun stuff. Those are some of the headlines that I'm looking at. Here's Charlie Pellet with even more. I thank you very much. And here's what's going on only days before the UK will host 197 countries for key global climate change talks. Chancellor of the Exchequer Rishi Sunak has promised to cut taxes on fuel and flying. In his budget speech today, Sunak said he wanted to encourage more people to take short-haul flights within the UK so that he's reducing the air passenger duty on those journeys to six and a half pounds. That is expected to help nine million passengers. Shares of Britain's pub operators rallied as Sunak announced lower taxes on beer in his autumn budget. J.D. Weatherspoon rose 5.3%, the most in more than seven months. Peers, including Mitchell's and Butler's, added 5.7%. Marston's up 6.3%. Sunak says alcohol will now be taxed according to strength. With the main duty rate cut, too, that'll mean a lower rate of duty on draft beer and cider. And the UK government has confirmed it will tax the country's largest property firms to help replace unsafe cladding in apartments that has left thousands of people in potentially dangerous homes. The safety of UK apartment blocks came into question in the aftermath of the Grenfell Tower tragedy in 2017, where a high-rise block of flats with flammable cladding caught fire and 72 people died. Cladding is any material that's added to protect the exterior of a building. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. All right, Charlie Pellet, thanks so much. I cannot get enough of that pub stuff. Um, okay, well, earlier on the program on television, if you were listening and watching, uh, you heard, but I think it's worth replaying a little bit here. John Glenn, UK Treasury Economic Secretary, uh, came on with us to, just, to discuss the budget and kind of what it means, how they're thinking about it. 
It's a budget that says we need to have a sustained recovery. We've grown the fastest of the G7 uh, economies over the last year. We want to maintain that momentum and do everything that we can in the United Kingdom to get people to invest, invest in skills, invest in increased productivity in our economy and get to a point where that growth can continue. That's how we deal with the debt burden that we have and how we can actually uh, secure better outcomes for people that live in this country. Sort of that leveling up idea uh, that Boris Johnson's been promoting. Um, joining me now, David Goodman, Bloomberg UK Economy and Bank of England reporter. David, your initial thoughts on the budget? Yeah, um, well, I think the initial thoughts was there was a lot in it and it was very dense. And we were expecting yeah. quite a kind of technical budget, actually, that not very much in the way of giveaways that Sunak was going to be kind of quite restrained as he tries to rebuild the public finances after um, after the pandemic. But yeah, as you say, there was there was an awful lot in there. And obviously the, the alcohol stuff we've touched on. But I think the main takeaway from us from from the economic side was that there was a lot of giveaways in there. I mean, around £75 billion worth over the next, uh, until, up until 2027. So that's a lot of extra spending that we weren't yeah. expecting. And I think that's kind of interesting, especially as he's managing to use the OBR's forecast to, to, to fund the spending without actually borrowing more. So it's kind of, he is being fiscally restrained, but he's also splashing the cash. It's a kind of interesting dynamic. So well, yeah. I was expecting whatever money was going to be put out there was not going to be a lot of net new money. Was there a lot of net new money? Yeah, so that that seventy five billion pound figure is the that's the net new the, the amount that it's kind of going to cost them. And obviously, that's kind of funded partly by better growth and also a lot of tax rises that were trailed before budget day. So he did the kind of the hard work in in September and now is kind of cashing on that now. So does that mean that then it runs the risk of being inflationary? And we asked John Glenn about that, and obviously he said no. <laughs> but I wonder, like, if word on the street is that's a lot of money at a time when growth is supposed to be really good, at a time when you wind up having very high energy prices and high rising input costs, um, inflationary or no? Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely it could be inflationary. And that was something the OBR said to the, the government's fiscal watchdog. They were saying that um, they thought the inflation was, was already going to be about 4.4% this year, could go even higher in that, um, some developments since they made those forecasts. Inflation could be the highest in, in, in three decades was their kind of ultimate takeaway. And, and obviously, their spending really plays into that. And you saw the markets that you were talking about what happened in the gilt market because of the, the supply. But I think also, if you look at what's happening in Bank of England bets, um, people have become more certain there's going to be a rate hike next week uh, relative to where they were yesterday. So it's going to be inter- interesting that you've got people betting on rate hikes next week, but also um, lo- longer term gilt yields coming down. Right. Okay. So after the budget, inc- the money market started pricing in higher rates? Higher from the Bank of England, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. That's not at all in the bond market today. No, no. I think obviously you were talking about supply. So, yeah. And there's been this slightly strange disconnect in UK markets between what the various assets are doing before the, before the Bank of England acting. So I suppose that's just a continuation of that. Fair enough. Um, I also was really interested in how the government is kind of thinking about higher inflation, sure, but also these higher energy prices, uh, the labor disconnect. Um, the problems over COVID that have not gone away. I mean, it feels like lockdowns of sorts are like really ruled out. But I, honestly, unless boosters get taken up, like who, who's to say? And and I just wonder if they're going to have to wind up spending more. Like if things are going to be a little worse growth wise than we're expecting for all these external factors. Yeah, I think that absolutely is a risk. I mean, th- this winter is going to be really tough for a lot of people in the UK. We've talked about higher energy bills. Um, and obviously just inflation in general is in the push up the cost of living for everyone. Um, the government are trying to take action against that. They 
they put up the minimum wage by 6.6%. Mm-hmm. So that's a, obviously a fairly hefty increase. Um, and also they made some changes to the way benefits are paid that mean that if you're in work, you, you get to kind of take home more of your, your salary if you're still on benefits. So mm-hmm. they are looking at measures to to address that. But as you say, if we if cases carry on and the government has to do more in the way of economic restrictions, then you kind of feel that there will have to be more supportive spending. Otherwise, we're going to be in a pretty difficult position. Uh, so reaction then... Um from the BOE for next week. Do you wh- what do they think about this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well that, that do they is like the question. It? Um I think they are very worried about inflation. You've seen that from some of the comments yeah. from from Andrew Bailey and obviously he said a few weeks ago we're going to have to act to to cut off in, to cut off inflation. It's next week's looking interesting. I think markets are a lot more certain than economists that there's going to be a, a, a hike next week. Mm-hmm. Um so, I mean, this will be one of the things that kind of plays into that, I would have thought. Um, some technical things around the BOE forecast that mean it might not be fully reflected in that mm-hmm. by the time that they, they, they meet. But, um, yeah, I, I, we were just having that conversation on the desk earlier. It's going to be a, a very, very tricky one. Yeah, it's, it's actually going to be quite interesting. Yeah. Um, I really would prefer not to hear the phrase unreliable boyfriend, but I feel like that's going to be in my cards in some capacity. Um, David, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. David Goodman, Bloomberg UK Economy and Bank of England reporter. Coming up, Deutsche Bank, disappointed. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Over in Europe, also closed down by about 6%. Um, a couple things. One, they closed their equity trading business before, so they didn't benefit from that. Um, their fixed trading revenue was down about 12%, which is in line with peers. But the problem was that its M&A advisory fees just did not hold a candle uh, to its peers, and their expenses that they weren't perfe- uh, prepared for uh, went up, which led a lot of questions as to how is this company going to really have a growth catalyst? Uh, Bloomberg caught up with CFO James von Moltke uh, earlier in the day. Our three months and nine months performance this year are absolutely in line with the, the glide path or trajectory we'd set for, for uh, targets and performance next year. And importantly, the transformation that we've been working on in Deutsche Bank is, is underway and ready to deliver on its targets and, and, and goals. And the momentum in the businesses is very strong, as you point out. And in terms of the investment banking uh, unit, as far as I can see, your revenues were slightly down, but in line with uh, what the market was expecting on the street. Uh, do you blame that on performance or just the overall market conditions that perhaps are not as, as exciting as they were a year ago? Well, it's a normalization of the market environment relative to a very strong you know, Q3 2020, which was sort of colored by the pandemic conditions we were in. So against that backdrop, 6% down in the investment bank is, is very strong performance uh, into our mind. And what about fixed income? I mean, that's that's usually the unit that the people look at at Deutsche Bank. You're competing with big U.S. banks. How are you going to stay competitive on that? Absolutely. It does seem the market is a little bit, perhaps, yeah. credit. And there, I, I think we performed in line with the market, which, again, is good against what was an outperformance last year uh, in, in fixed income. And it demonstrates that we're really consolidating our market shares. Um, we've continued the progress, I think, since 2019, since we announced our, our transformation, our restructuring. We've focused the business on core areas where we could be competitive. And as we're seeing, the client engagement, the, the momentum, the progress in the business is really th- showing through. So you actually think there could be momentum in that part of the business? You do see client appetite? We do. A, a we do. Sort of market conditions were more muted in the third quarter. Um, so volatility was, was relatively low. But client engagement was high and actually increased as the quarter went on. So there is activity out there as, as clients hedge, as they position for 
for what is in fact a changing environment out there. Um, so we're quite optimistic also about the, the ability to carry some of that momentum forward. And of course, we've talked about clients and, and your business performance overall, but the other big question is dividends, especially now the European Central Bank is allowing uh, for that. We're expecting to get one next year from uh, Deutsche Bank, but I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more. Uh, the timing, we kind of seem to know when it will be approved, but in terms of the payments and how you're going to structure that, is there something that you could... It's too early to say. So we've, we, we, after this restructuring, we've been very clear that we intend to begin distributing capital back to shareholders. We've set a goal of $5 billion of capital to come back, which relative to our market cap is a significant amount. At this point, we've, we've made deductions from our common equity tier one of about 640 million euros in order to support distributions next year. So we think we're on a, on a very good path to, to, to begin those distributions. Um, they'll have to happen in the ordinary course with regulatory approvals and ultimately the AGM approving our distributions. But we're, we're confident of our ability to, to, to begin on this process. I also want to ask you about the, the macro picture, particularly you mentioned the European economy. There's a huge debate now in terms of inflation, whether this is one-off, temporary, it's, a, it's a, the big word, or, or actually sticky. I mean, I'm not sure if you have big opinions on that. If you do, I'd be curious to hear them. But, but also, you know, how is that going to impact potentially uh, monetary policy? I mean, it does have a repercussion on banks in terms of the, the rate guidance forward. Absolutely. Right? Huge, huge impact. So maybe I'll go backwards. The current rate curve is already beginning to help the banking industry. So as we see rates go up, in our case, um, the current curve is worth about 150 million in revenue terms uh, more for us next year than we thought a year ago. So that's a help. And that rises to about 500 million euros in 2025. In fact, more than that on the current curves. Should inflation rise further and rates move up further, more benefit from the banks. And that's, that's very helpful after a long period of low and, and negative interest rates. Now, the economy going to the front of your question, um, look, when we talk to clients, um, corporate clients, they see inflation in their supply chains. And they are looking for ways to pass through those inflationary pressures in their pricing. And we are seeing in the debate about how other things, like wages, would adjust to those pricing pressures feeding through. And so there is, of course, a risk that it isn't transitory and that, that there'll be inflationary pressures sticking with us for longer. That was Jens von Molke, uh, CFO of Deutsche Bank, speaking there. Um, we have a really fun move in the bond market, guys. We're seeing some strong buying in the back end here in the U.S. A lot of move happening in the U.K. We'll break that all down. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Fun market action picking up, guys. It's going to be an interesting trading day. Uh, you're seeing bond moves that are pretty unreal at this point. Um, UK, huge. Seeing some big buying in the back end. Uh, yields up in the 50 by 18 basis points over in Canada. Seeing selling on the front end now up by about uh, 17 basis points here in the U.S., picking up steam as well. Uh, stronger buying coming in on the back end. We're now down on the 30-year by about eight basis points. Um, what is happening? Vincent Signorella, a voice of Bloomberg Macro Audio Squawk, uh, joins me now. Vince, it's been too long. It's been ages. How are you? I know. I miss you, as always. Um, what is happening in the bond market today? Well, I, I, obviously... You know, we saw what happened with the Bank of Canada basically ending QE. Sure. Uh, they're just going to maintain um, purchases. I think the market's a little bit ahead of the skis um, in the fact that they're still they still are going to keep a very aggressive uh, monetary stimulus policy. It's it's in no way cutting back on that policy. 
other than uh, the, the the reinvestment stage. So they are going to reinvest. They're going to continue QE. They're just going to, I'm uh, sorry, they're going to end QE, but they're going to continue uh, the reinvestment and continue to add stimulus to the economy. We saw U.S. rates, U.K. rates, uh, basically rates uh, in most of the G10 space uh, back up a little bit on that, not as aggressively as in Canada, of course. Um, a lot of traders uh, talking that maybe this is be, be something of a wake-up call for the Fed and that they'll see themselves as having to make similar moves. Um, and again, also the Bank of England, even more so because of the backup in inflation. Now, we have the ECB tomorrow, but the ECB or the European zone hasn't experienced the same type of uh, jump in inflation yeah. as, say, in Canada, especially the UK and in the US. So I think what we will see more tomorrow uh, for uh, Eurozone is Lagarde sort of playing a little bit of a referee, trying to trying to balance the rhetoric from the hawks and the doves. There's There's been a lot of mixed messages coming from the Eurozone, mm-hmm. um, and I think she's going to push back on that a little bit. We saw some pushback from the chief economist, Lane, uh, not too long ago, basically, basically flat out saying he didn't understand why the markets were pricing things the way they were mm-hmm. and that he thought the pricing was a little aggressive. And so if she comes back with that, I think you're going to see the, uh, the bonds uh, gain a, a little bit in Europe. So are you and, just going to answer all my questions in, in one answer? In once, in before, one sentence. Before yeah. I actually ask them? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Vince did the hard break. Uh, okay, <laughs> unpack that for me for a second. Um, Bank of Canada, that makes sense. I can see the read-through for the Fed. They'll have to do something similar, which feels like what the market's kind of prepped for. Um, Bank of England, I found really interesting because um, you've seen – buying come in, you have the technical factor of Treasury is not going to be necessarily issuing a lot. But then you had money market expectations for a rate hike move up again. And then the currency does not. I, I just I don't understand what's happening in the UK in terms of well, what the, literally is the, happening and then what the bond market's doing. Right. So the UK, the Bank of England, in effect, is kind of uh, caught between the rock and the hard place issue. Um, if inflation does pick up uh, and, and they do see the need to raise rates, what you're seeing in the UK is it's the wrong kind of inflation. The UK imports uh, a great deal of product, more so now with the difficulty with um, the situation with Brexit in the Eurozone. Mm-hmm. And so price hikes and inflation for the UK strike a nerve that's, uh, a, that, that hurts more than it does, say, the Eurozone, the US, uh, and in Canada. And as a result, what people expect to happen doesn't generally happen, which is they look for the currency to appreciate because of rate differentials, but not recognizing that the real rates are deteriorating in the UK and and potentially Mm -hmm. going to hurt economic growth. And so by default, then uh, the pound suffers, uh, and especially against the euro. So that's probably what's going on in the currency stage. And the Bank of England, if, if they do hike, you know, you'll get that sort of knee-jerk reaction, but I don't think it'll last uh, for any kind of a jump in sterling. Oh, man. Sounds really hard. Um, so then you are mentioning the ECB before I so rudely cut you off. Um, so that's sort of the state of play in the UK, Canada, and then the U.S. So the ECB, it, okay, is the ECB an entirely different story? Uh, or, in essence, will it be somewhat similar that they'll sort of shift their stimulus you know, maybe we're going to go to a PEP to something different. We're going to revamp the APP. Um, or are they just really in their own spot because of the lack of inflation? I, I mean, there's inflation, I, but you know what I mean. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, for the ECB, I think, first of all, there's too many acronyms and, and, and 
pep and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I wonder what the know, next it, one will be called. Uh, I, I can't even remember the ones they have now. Yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm thinking that, um, and I mean, these are some of the smart people I talk to, that she's going to walk a little bit of a tightrope tomorrow, mm-hmm. try not to give too much of a hint, um, maybe not as boring as, as, as the last time, but uh, walk more of a middle-of-the-road strategy. But again, be quote-unquote data-dependent and quote-unquote leaving the policy doors wide open to what the data show in the future. There isn't really a need for the ECB to follow the footsteps of the Bank of Canada or or the Bank of England or even Mm -hmm. potentially the Fed at this point. Um, Inflation is finally past their target level. It's, again, they are in the same camp as everyone else, the transitory camp, so they're going to wait and most likely uh, see inflation overshoot and see whether or not it's persistent. My personal belief is it will be persistent and they will be playing catch-up. But for the Eurozone, which has not been able to get anywhere near target inflation, where the HICP inflation has been like 1% for 10 years, um, <laughs> as, as every central banker in the ECB would say, oh, we're getting near our target inflation, and they never come close. Yeah. Um, this is a potential to give them the opportunity to get past that and then deal with it down the road, which I think most central bankers would be happy to do. Um, before I let you go, and you've like thirty seconds, um, if you were still in trading FX right now, what do you? What would you mm-hmm. like? What would I like? Um, I kind of still like the dollar broadly overall because mm-hmm. of uh, two reasons in general. Uh, number one, if, you know, if the, the taper is coming, uh, rate hikes are, are coming. I think inflation is persistent. That's going to favor the dollar over most uh, currencies, especially emerging market currencies. Mm-hmm. And it's it's if the other side of the coin happens and, and we see bad things, it's a ha- it's a haven by. All right, Vince, always a pleasure. Miss you here, uh, Vincent Signorella, voice of the Bloomberg Macro Audio Squad. He will talk all day, and he's awesome. So you should listen. Um, okay, coming up, we're going to be talking about COVID, um, the details of testing and vaccinations and breakthrough COVID cases. Uh, this is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, London. It is 5.30 where you are. It's 12.30 right here in the U.S. I'm Alex Steele. Guy Johnson is off today um, for the rest of the week. So let's get to some of the market action here. It's quite interesting um, here in the U.S. You've got earnings galore. Uh, Nasdaq up by about six-tenths of one percent. The Dow up by two-tenths, or I should say three-tenths of one percent, led lower um, by materials as well uh, as energy. Um, Energy trading a little bit heavier today. You had a a build in the Pad 3 Gulf Coast for oil inventories. Also, maybe we're starting restarting nuclear talks with Iran, so that's putting a little bit of pressure on the energy sector. The real move that I find so interesting is the bond market. In the U.S., 30-year, under 2%, uh, 10-year, 154, tons of buying in the back end, selling in the front end here. We're almost at 50 basis points for the two-year. Um, it's sort of following, in a more muted sense, the Bank of Canada, after they said that they were going to be tapering a little bit sooner than we thought. Um, they are going to work on the taper, not necessarily a rate hike. Um, it feels like maybe that's a precursor to the Fed in some respects. That's kind of the news here uh, and the lay of the land here in the U.S. Let's get some other stories with Charlie Pellet. Hey, Charlie. Well, hello there. Thank you very much indeed, Alex Steele. And here's what's going on. Russian President Vladimir Putin has told Gazprom to turn to refilling its European gas storage facilities beginning November 8th, once the gas producer completes its domestic gas reinjection campaign. 
Ukraine. Putin told Gazprom's CEO, quote, I would ask you once you have finished your work to refill Russian underground storages on or by November 8th to start gradual and planned work to raise gas volumes in your inventories in Europe, in Austria and Germany. Rishi Sunak has raised funding for every government department and offered fresh support for working families while pledging to stabilize the public finances in a surprisingly expansive budget that channeled the upbeat instincts of his boss, Boris Johnson. Setting out his plans in Parliament today, the Chancellor of the Exchequer sought to raise the national spirits by declaring, quote, that a new economy post-COVID will usher in a, quote, new age of optimism. Novavax has applied for authorization of its COVID-19 vaccine in the UK, the first submission for a protein-based shot against the disease in the region. Its U.S. shares are up more than 6%. Novavax has completed its rolling submission, an accelerated review of trial and manufacturing data with the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency and filed for a conditional marketing license. That is the latest stuff from the news desk. Alex Steele back to you now here in New York. All right, Charlie Pellet, thank you so much. Appreciate that. So let's stay with COVID for a second. Um, Sam Fazelli, Bloomberg Intelligence, a senior pharmaceutical analyst, I beat me yesterday and he said, uh, I have COVID. I have a breakthrough infection. He's fully vaccinated um, and he got COVID after two false negatives. And he suggested that we do kind of a daily update on like, how's it going? What are you learning, et cetera? And I thought he was kidding, but he was serious. So that's what we're going to do over the next few days, as long as Sam is kind of dealing with this to help chronicle where maybe the issues are in the system and where the benefits are, et cetera. And he joins me now. First off, Sam, how are you feeling? Yeah, I'm, I'm very good, thanks, Alex. I think I might be standing uh, a, a little bit uh, hoarse, um, but uh, but that's about it at the minute in terms of uh, the outward uh, feel. But it 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 doesn't feel great. This is not the sniffles, mm-hmm. you know. I'm I'm not a young I'm not a young guy, right? As you know, <laughs> I'm not exactly really old either. But but with the age bracket I am, I, I really don't want to have to go through this. Um, whatever number of times a year. Um, at the minute, it feels like a pretty bad flu. Oh, that's not good. Okay, yesterday was a cold, now it feels like a bad flu. Um, do you know how you got it? Um, and what was your testing process like? Honestly, I don't know. <clears throat> I did have a dinner with some friends uh, on Friday night. Um, it could have been that. Um, it might have been on the airplane coming back from France to the UK on Thursday night. Might have been on public transport, although I wear a really decent mask. I don't know. Uh, and the reality is, uh, to a certain extent, in the UK, the case rates are relatively high. So the probability of you coming across somebody who's positive is not small. Mm. Um, and the testing process, well, to be honest with you, I, I kept testing myself. Um, you, you know, in the UK, you can get free lateral flow tests. So mm. I don't know how easy it would be in the US to pick yourself like this. And, and as I had symptoms or mild symptoms, I kept testing. And yesterday, I have to admit I was in the office because everything's open in the UK. It came up bright red on the uh, positive side. How many times did you test yourself? I did one on Monday afternoon. <clears throat> Excuse me. Monday afternoon. And then I did another one on uh, Tuesday morning before I went to work, which is what you do. And they were both clearly negative, not even a faint line. Hmm. And within the space of six or seven hours, when I tested again, and the reason I tested again in the office, I was feeling a bit more ropey. I don't mm-hmm. know if you have that phrase in the US. We don't, a bit but less, I get it. Uh, a, a, a bit less sharp. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, and I tested and I went, oh my God. I was hoping I would look at it. It was perfectly clear and it wasn't. So how many people would feel... So did you have to take the test, the first two, or did you do it because you felt kind of crappy? No, I did it just by myself. It's very easy to get them here. You get mm-hmm. packs of seven from the National Health Service just given to you for free. And, it, and, it, and, it, and, I, and I think it helps because... <clears throat> If I'd waited for a PCR test, it wouldn't have been until today till mm. I've got it. And actually, in the UK, you have to qualify with certain um, symptoms. If you don't have a high temperature or a consistent or worsening cough, you don't qualify for a PCR test, mm. which well, is stupid because really, that, you know, I don't have either of those. Well, here, like, you have to pay for them unless you have symptoms. Like, you straight up have to pay, which is ridiculous because you have to the – whole, the whole point is you want to prevent, right? Um, right. So, Okay, so to that point, I mean, so y- you took three of them, and I just wonder how many people would have done that. Like, you're f- like, so someone's feeling a little under the weather, they take one, and it comes back negative. How many people are going to actually take the two more versus just saying, like, oh, I guess I just have a case of the flu? And I wonder, like, is that why we're seeing cases spread so fast? That's a really good question because... You know, the lateral flow test, you know, people call them false negatives. They're not false negatives. They, they, don't, they don't give you a positive signal until there's a, a, a certain degree or amount of virus mm. in your oh, passages. Okay. And also, if you're doing them yourself and you don't really push hard and don't, don't, don't do the back of your throat till you gag, you might not get enough substance, mm-hmm. if you like. So I don't know, to be honest with you. I could have gone and paid for a PCR test. I just know that it's easier in the UK to just get these things. You walk into a pharmacy, sure. scan a barcode, and, and you get it. Um, and, and honestly, I think it's because I'm, I'm a nerd and, I, and I've been looking at this for ever since it started. I don't know how many people would have thought about it. I do have friends who've had some symptoms, looks like a cold, and um, just don't do anything about it. Hmm. And because there's no other preventative measures there, right? No social distancing, there's no, no. mask wearing. I mean, that doesn't sound like the best cocktail there. No, it's all gone. But let me put myself uh, in this position of having been in New York. Assuming New York had the same number of um, positive cases going, right? Mm. Anyone with a vaccine, i.e. a vaccine passport, or whatever it's called in the U.S., can go into a restaurant and eat dinner, right? Which would be you, because you're fully vaxxed. Which is exactly what I did in London. If I caught it on that, or if I caught it on the plane with my mask on, etc., etc., um, I, um, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't think there's a huge amount of difference when it comes to you should have a pass. It really works because I know at that dinner that I had, mm. everybody was vaccinated because it was a private dinner. Well, Sam, look, I really hope that you feel okay. I appreciate you doing this with me. I will talk to you again tomorrow. There's so much more to dig into in this. Um, get some rest. Don't do too much. We are thinking about you. Thanks a lot, Sam Pizzelli of Bloomberg Intelligence, senior uh, pharmaceutical analyst. We kind of chronicle. Um, what happens when you get COVID and a breakthrough infection. All right, coming up next, we'll talk some earnings. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. So the fun move in the market is really in the bond market right now, but we still have a lot of earnings coming in. The commentary is still so quite interesting. And what we realize, that margin squeeze of pain that everyone was kind of warning about isn't happening, at least not in this quarter. So I wanted to dig a little deeper in here with Kriti Gupta, uh, for Bloomberg. Um, are you Bloomberg? You're just Bloomberg TV now. Bloomberg TV now. There's no special. There's no special anything. No, no, you're special. I'm, but just the title-wise. very yeah. average. Uh, yeah, so, so am I. <laughs> okay, so um, 
I, to be honest, I have been so in the other world of the budget, of yields, et cetera. Um, what are some of the highlights of earnings that we're getting? Well, you know what's interesting is everyone was expecting this to be, like you said, the the, the, the earnings season that was going to lead to this big kind of crash, essentially, not just in the stock market, but in the underlying economy, basically heralding the end of this uh, recovery, essentially, that, that you've seen for the past what, year and a half, two years almost, Mm -hmm. uh, really since the crash of of March 2020. And that's the exact opposite of what's happening. You're actually seeing people be able to weather the storm. I mean, look at some of these earnings. A lot of this has to do with, uh, you're hearing the same commentary. You have supply chain concerns, you have labor shortages, but we're a big enough company to absorb them. And that's really what you're seeing still kicking the can down the road. And I think probably the biggest takeaway uh, from all of the earnings seasons is that the consumer is still buying the products. There is still demand for things from snowmobiles and motorcycles. Uh, if you're looking at Polaris earnings or even food, McDonald's and Coca-Cola, people are still spending. Well, I find the McDonald's Coca-Cola read-through quite interesting because um, McDonald's in particular, because if you're going to look at a company that's going to see higher input costs and higher wages, it's going to be McDonald's. Um, and if you're going to and and if you're seeing higher energy prices, if you're seeing um, Input costs rising for individuals to like live, they're not going to go out to like a McDonald's or something, and and they're they're going to stay at home. And I, I found that to be particularly interesting in that maybe we're going to be okay at least for this quarter and next. Yeah, uh, I would agree with that. I think with like McDonald's is an interesting example because people like to look at currency exposure for McDonald's in particular, mm, just because it's such call. a big uh, company, and of course they have to hedge a lot of their uh, or their revenue to bring it back to the U.S. So dollar strength is going to be a big part of it. That's something to watch as we really talk about what region of the world is going to come out of this the strongest. And right now, um, when we're talking about inflation, it's still the commentary is still that the U.S. is going to be able to deal with it a lot better mm-hmm. than, say, emerging market nations, of course, or other parts. But I think your point on uh, simply this idea that people are going to be okay maybe for the third quarter, we have to keep in mind that fiscal stimulus impact was still there in the last third quarter. You are right. seeing those forecasts cut, though, mm-hmm. for the fourth quarter. So uh, that but can is being kicked is down the road. saying so high. Like that's surprised too. Like yes, to your point, the fiscal stimulus is still there, so they're still spending. That that spending or that fiscal stimulus in that particular way is gone. You don't have the extra unemployment benefits, therefore that won't be there. Um, but the but the expectation and consumer sentiment is still really strong. So that's that has also been um, quite surprising, which means these companies can pass on cost increases. I don't remember the last time we've seen that. Right, they can, and this is where uh, I mean I'm going to go macro here. I know we're talking yeah. about earnings, but this is where wage inflation really comes in handy, and it's going to be that focus focus on labor going forward, away from supply chains going into labor, because those costs are going to be really expensive. One of the reasons that UPS, for example, was up yesterday was, in addition, of course, to their pretty stellar earnings, was they were able to weather the storm better than FedEx or even Amazon because mm. they were paying their employees a pretty decent wage and that they their bonuses were way out in 2023. So that labor piece of the, of the, of the conversation is really important when we're talking about what costs companies really have to pay for. And that's where you're starting to see a lot of those union negotiations happen, strikes even from the likes of John Deere, from Kellogg, uh, et cetera. Yeah. And, and, and strikes and union unionization like really across the, the board, like in many different kind of industries. Um, we just had about 40 seconds left. And I'm wondering, what's the next earnings thing you're looking at? What are you most pumped about? I mean, we have to talk about Apple, right? Apple and Amazon. That is ultimately those guys. Those guys. guys. Uh, I mean, that's ultimately going to be the biggest take on consumer. Apple is a proxy for foot traffic, consumer income. They are, after all, a luxury product. Amazon, of course, for consumer spending. A little bit better uh, in terms of e-commerce. But watch those logistics, because they are expensive. 
Yeah, that's going to be fun. All right, Kriti Gupta, thanks a lot from Bloomberg uh, Correspondent here on television. We appreciate that. Uh, coming up, talking earnings. So Twitter stock getting hit today. Uh, numbers came out. There were a little bit light. Missed some analyst estimates. We caught up with CFO Ned Siegel. Uh, stick around for that conversation. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAV Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. quarter sales outlook trailed Wall Street estimates. It's also uh, a tough tape for some of the tech guys. Um, I caught up with uh, Emily Chang as well as Ned Siegel, the CFO of Twitter, and we talked about the growth opportunities. Well, we're seeing some really positive trends broadly in our business, growing the audience 13% year over year, so re-accelerating our DAU growth and delivering 37% revenue growth gives us the wind at our backs going into Q4. As you mentioned, we see a lot of advertising for services and digital goods on Twitter. That's well more than half of the ad revenue that we get. So although you can see great ads for phones and TVs and other physical goods where there may be supply chain constraints, there's also a lot happening around streaming services and movies and uh, other uh, services or digital goods such as our map business for app installs, which actually grew faster than overall revenue this quarter. Uh, So there's lots of great things that we think can uh, help us continue this momentum going into Q4. That said, shares are down this morning, 8% right now, down uh, significantly over the course of three months. Where are investors seeing the weaknesses when you talk to them? What are they concerned about? Well, I suspect uh, you'll know better than I uh, what uh, some of the things are that they might be concerned about this morning. But we were so pleased last night to share a a few different uh, areas uh, that we're focused on as we go into Q4. One is continuing to help creators get paid on Twitter. For years, they've been building their audience on Twitter and then getting paid somewhere else. And those days are over. They're going to be able to monetize their audience on Twitter through ticketed spaces, through tips, through super follows, and so many more things over time. We also shared on the call that we plan to continue to invest to drive growth. Uh, We're going to grow expenses and headcount over 30% this year, and that posture won't change as we look ahead because we feel there's so much more work we can do to serve the public conversation and to better monetize our service. You mentioned tips. How popular has the tip jar been so far, specifically tipping in general and tipping in Bitcoin, which is now allowed? Well, I've received some tips in Bitcoin already. I'm giving all mine to charity, but it's fun to play with the product and give people the opportunity to do so as well. Uh, We think about tips as just an example of how we want to help people get paid. If you like what somebody's saying, if you want to contribute, whether it's to a GoFundMe or with Bitcoin through a Lightning uh, wallet, or if you want to use the Cash App or other things, we just want to make it as easy as possible to allow value to transfer from one person to another on Twitter. We think about that a lot less from a revenue perspective for us and a lot more about helping people get paid, because if we do that, there'll be so much more great content and we'll continue to grow our audience on Twitter. Fair enough. This is Alex. Uh, Ned, thanks for joining us. Um, Fair enough. But still, you're going to want to grow your revenue and grow that top line. And I'm wondering uh, how much the new products that you're unveiling are really going to contribute to the top line growth, and when can we expect some real numbers there? Well, Alex, we grew revenue 37% this quarter, so I think you're seeing it already. Uh, We guided for the typical seasonal strength that we see in Q4. The Olympics were such a strong event for us. We exceeded our expectations 
uh, when advertisers uh, came to Twitter during the Olympics. 12 of the 14 Olympics advertisers amplified their campaigns on Twitter. Asahi got 2 billion impressions around their campaigns during the Olympics. It's a great example of how we're able to deliver for advertisers. We came out with a new format called the the um, multi-destination carousel, so you can click through and go to different places on an advertiser's website. That's driving 20% better click-through rates. These are real proof points that we're able to deliver better and better for advertisers right now. Um, when you take a look at your user base, uh, U.S. users were flat quarter on quarter, and of course it brings back the conversation of are you at the U.S. saturation point? Do you not need to really grow that DAU base? Is it just more about monetizing than that base? Is that going to be the strategy if you are at saturation? We want to get the rest of the world to use Twitter. Uh, today, 211 million people use Twitter every day all around the world. 20% uh, of those are in the United States. The rest are outside of the United States. And there are a whole other groups of people that look just like the 37 million people who use Twitter every day in the U.S. The top of funnel is really healthy. So we get a lot of at-bats, and we just need to keep doing a better and better job of converting people to help them make Twitter part of their daily ritual. We did mention on the call that we expect USDAU to continue the seasonal trends that we've seen. It's often flat in the middle of the year, and we said that we thought it would be flat to slightly up as we look ahead to Q4 based on our product improvements, based on seasonality, based on all the great events that are happening all around the world. I'm curious what you make of PayPal's interest in Pinterest, Ned, because the thought is that perhaps this is a sign social media is maturing. Is it? And if so, what does that mean for Twitter? I'm not sure what to what conclusions to draw from that, but one of the things that uh, we may see that they see as well is the ability to help creators get paid and to bring more commerce to our platform. Today, we've launched business profiles so that a business can differentiate themselves from your profile or mine. They can put their hours of operation, they can have a link to their website, and we're also testing where they can sell goods and services straight from that profile. Helping make transactions easier to happen, giving people different currencies and different ways that they can do complete their transaction and bring the transaction closer to where people are learning about goods and services on Twitter is a big part of the opportunity for us. That may be uh, what you're hearing about from others as well. You know, people love to speculate, and one of the wilder theories I've heard is that given Jack's love of crypto, that Twitter and Square, it might make sense that one day they could merge. Just how wild is that theory? Is there any chance of something like that? You know, Emily, there's so much that's in our control at Twitter with $150 billion and growing addressable market to show ads to people on our service. With 7 billion people who don't use Twitter every day all around the world, we're so focused on those two really big opportunities that that takes up all of our time. That was Neg Siegel, the CFO of Twitter, and Emily Chang uh, joining me earlier on the show. Um, that wraps it up for The Cable. Hope you enjoyed the show. Happy Wednesday. We made it through. I will see you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Cable. I'm Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. Have a great night, guys. This is Bloomberg.